Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, you're listening to the 10th episode of STT Rewind, hosted by me, Owen Hughes, co-editor of setthetape.com. On today's episode, I'm joined by Set the Tape writer and podcast regular Steve Norman, and for the first time, Darren Mooney joins the show to help us round up some pop culture talking points from the past fortnight. Coming up in the programme, in part one, we look at Avengers Infinity War, which may be breaking box office records, but is it breaking the MCU? In part two, Cancel Friday has us all confused about what's actually showing on television, where it's actually showing on television, and why it's actually showing on television in the wake of Brooklyn Nine-Nine's promised revival. Cassette tape returns for Matt Latham to pay tribute to frightened rabbit frontman Scott Hutchison before Freeplay raises the weird and murky world of tie-in fiction. Now, let's get on with the show. Part one of this week's STT Rewind begins as it always does with our film section and we are still on an Avengers buzz after Infinity War. The latest MCU movie is smashing records left, right and centre. According to an article on Screen Rant, Infinity War set the domestic opening box office record, the international box office record. It's the fastest film to reach 300 million. It crossed 1 billion in record time and now it's the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. But statistics speak nothing to the quality of the film, and Infinity War has fallen flat in the emotional stakes for at least one person on set the tape. Callum Petch, who wrote the article about Avengers breaking the MCU, uh, he calls the decade-long project a failure. Strong words. Uh, Darren, as the debutante on tonight's episode... Someone calls the MCU a failure. How do you react? This is very summarized Proust in 300 words in French, but um, thank you very much, Owen. <laughs> I, I actually I, I read a bit of Callum's article there, and I, I understand what he's saying, but I actually agree with a great deal of what he's saying. I think he mm-hmm. makes some very valid points about like the fact that, and being honest, we can talk with complete spoilers. If you haven't seen you know, the, the movie, feel, please feel free to skip this section of the podcast, because I imagine if we're talking about how it's broken, we're going to talk about how it's broken but the ending of the film which involves half of the mcu disappearing 
-hmm. and a very strategically selected half of the MCU. It's the half of the MCU that includes Spider-Man, Black Panther, um, basically everybody except for the original six Avengers. So it's everybody who you know is going to be back at the end of the next film. And more than that, <laughs> like uh, you, it's it's also like constructed in such a way that you never really, you don't really feel the sense of, of loss or death of half the universe. There's a really mm -hmm. sad moment where Peter Parker dies, you know, disappears or fades to dust in Tony Stark's arm saying, I don't want to go in the style yeah. of the 10th Doctor. But there's no sense of like half the life in the universe being wiped out. There's no sense of like desolation. It isn't the leftovers to pick a TV example. It isn't like the red wedding of Game of Thrones. There's no mm -hmm. shots of people in New York watching their relatives disappear. It's all very academic and it's all, well, at least for me, and I sort of agree with Callum here, it was very academic for me. It was very, you know, there's no way watching it that you you don't think that this is going to be reset and you realize that resetting it is going to involve a massive amount of undercutting of everything that you've seen to this point mm -hmm. but while i agree with callum on that point i'm not entirely convinced by the argument that this breaks the mcu because mm -hmm. I, I feel like the stories that are being told in the mcu movies are at least distinct enough from one another that it's possible to maintain an internal emotional strength to each of those. Like I, after watching Infinity War, I went back and I watched Black Panther. And Black Panther is still as good a movie as it was the first time I watched it. I watched Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok is still as good a movie as it was the first time I watched it. Now I may know going into it that the characters are going to be cynically manipulated down the line, but like the existence of Star Trek V doesn't invalidate the fact that William Shatner <laughs> was a pretty great Captain Kirk. Sure. And then the same sort of thing. Like, I mean, the shots of, like, Killmonger is still a great villain in Black Panther. I still feel his rage and his anger and his sorrow. It doesn't matter that I know that the guy he's fighting against is going to disappear at the end of the next movie and reappear at the end of the movie that's a sequel to that one. So mm -hmm. it, it doesn't necessarily break it for me. It does illustrate, I think, perhaps the limitations of mm -hmm. these sort of big gigantic blockbusters like the Avenger, the, the Avenger sequels under the Rousseau brothers, where everything feels like it's clockwork and mechanical and it's all very smooth and all the rough edges have been filed off and there's no joints showing. It's all incredibly well engineered as a machine and watching it, it feels like a machine to me, but I don't think that breaks the MCU, but that, that's just my perspective. What about you, Steve? I agree with uh, some of Callum's point. Um, but I think he's using a lot of hyperbole to 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 get it across. Um, it was obvious when you saw which characters disappeared that at least some of them would be coming back because you know what future films are lined up. You know there's a Guardians 3 and a sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming. And if they have disappeared from the universe, it's very hard to make them films. Mm. So Yeah, I mean, it is, that's a good point. And it, and it, it? So that kind of lessens the impact and really did marvel if they knew this is what's going to happen in in infinity war did they need to reveal those films were going to happen in the future because they can just say after infinity war there's going to be a few more films you're all going to give us some money and you're all going to go and see them it doesn't matter which superhero they are we'll tell you what they are after infinity war part two is done and they could have got away they could have done that conceivably of how big it is um but that kind of lessens some of the I suppose, impact of the characters dying because you think, well, those ones will be back. And then, you know, if you're being really cynical, you'd think Black Panther was his mass magic, uh, not magic, massive success. <laughs> why would they get, why would they kill him off after just one movie? As a set, as a franchise you know. property, it doesn't yeah. make sense. And you know that, I, I mean, it, we, you can talk about the narrative and we've talked about this mm -hmm. on a previous episode, I think, in the you see the the time stone and it turns back time and as yeah. soon as that happens but, uh, yeah. it's like, well, obviously 
none of this is going to have any lasting impact. The, the, but the other thing is, this isn't the end of this story. This no. is the second part of a, or the first part of a two-part film. So the the emotional impact to judge it on is surely at the end of that story. It's oh. trying to draw another example because I will pull everything I can back to Star Wars or football, and I can only really go to Star <laughs> Wars in this answer. Empire Strikes Back. It's quite shocking to see Han Solo frozen in carbonite and taken off the Jabba the Hutt. You know he's going to be back in the next film. It doesn't really lessen the impact of that happening. Well, uh, it, did we yeah. Did we know? Like, I, I recall there being, at the time, some controversy of whether or not Harrison Ford was willing to come back for a Jedi. Well, I, I knew there was Return of the Jedi by the time I'd seen it because I wasn't okay. alive when it was originally released. <laughs> but, you know, but you know what I mean? They went, they went off looking for him. At the end of Empire Strikes Back, the last scene is him yeah. going to find Han. You'd, you'd, from that, you'd assume that he is still alive and there's a good chance that he will make it to the next film. Um, I love the idea in Return of the Jedi of him being on Thawed and suddenly looking like Robert Redford and nobody has <laughs> on it. No one says but anything. I, 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 but, you yeah, see, but, but you see I, what I mean? The emotional impact <laughs> to judge Infinity War and part two is on is, is the end of the next film. Um, I, that That is where to judge. Yeah, it, it, it was quite not predictable, but the, the emotional impact was lessened by by being A, very cynical and realising some of these characters would be back and B, seeing what films were lined mm. up in the future and knowing some of those characters would be back. Yes, it was lessened quite substantially and also the, the kind of impact of half the people in the universe being wiped out wasn't really explored. Well, not explored, but you know seen properly because it was just the, the heroes that you saw disappear. You didn't sort of cut to a scene sure. of, a, of a planet and just sort of half the people disappear i suppose you did with the end credit scene but, but you know you know yeah just to interject very quickly because i think darren wanted to make a point as well but just to say like i don't think that the impact the emotional impact that that Callum's referring to is just specifically about the end point i think there's a lot of things that he brings up in the article which are very interesting around how uh well the, just at the very i think he actually opens the article talking about the um first scene of the film which is where the asgardians have been attacked by thanos and, you know, you're expected to feel this kind of shock and emotion when um, Heimdall is dead, when Loki is killed. But you've had, you know, in terms of this particular story, you've had about two two minutes with them. Um, I mean, was were you going in that kind of direction, Darren, or did you have a, a different point that you were... Well, I was going to just argue there and, and sort of, like, politely disagree with Steve and say that, like, I think that the emotional impact of Empire Strikes Back, like, doesn't okay. necessarily depend on Return of the Jedi, because I, I think that, like, for me, Empire actually has a much greater emotional impact than Return of the Jedi, because it doesn't have a moment as good as I love you, I know. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that, you know, you, you can put off the emotional judgment of a film. I think that, you know, it, it is there. But just what, what you were saying there about the, the opening scene of mm. um, the, the movie. And there's a lot of this in Infinity War. And I think it's, it's mm -hmm. a very good point. It's something that people don't really talk about with it. Is that like Infinity War is put down as this really dark, depressing, cynical, chaotic Marvel Cinematic Universe film. And it's not really because it's structured to avoid a lot of the carnage and death and destruction implied by a guy who wants to kill half the universe. You mentioned the opening scene where like mm -hmm. Thanos has killed half of the Asgardians to quote Thor later on. But you don't see it. It all happens off screen. You open in the aftermath of it. Or even later later on when you get the flashback to Gamora's planet where he's killing half of the population. But there the camera's kept off the violence. You actually see him move her cheek so that she's not even looking at it as the camera is refusing to look at it. And there's a sense of that threat 
about where the emotional impact of the film is all very muted and it's all very under control. And none of the characters in the film, for me, now, you know, I, I know that the, the stock complaint is not every movie has to be like a DCEU, DCEU mm -hmm. sort of like grr, grim, dark Batman <laughs> uh, sort of film. But it, it does feel watching it like everybody's all like, hey, this is just another day at the office. Watch us quip. There's like a recurring motif of characters like being threatened and held hostage by Thanos and making quips at one another. Like Thor, when he's having his head crushed, it takes a moment out to look at Loki and say, you really are the worst, brother. Or later on, where you have like Gamora, who's being held by Thanos, as Peter Quill is pointing a gun and considering whether or not to kill the woman he loves. And he's like, I told you to go right. And she's like, we're doing this now. And mm. it just, it feels very flippant and very light. And it's almost afraid to confront like the emotional reality of like half the people you know will be dead at the end of this if this giant purple monster does what he wants to do. Was that just me, guys? Or, or... No, no, I, I totally um, get that. I, um, I'm also sort of on the side of, well, I also appreciate this is kind of for a younger audience. And when I say that, I don't mean it in a completely derogatory way. What I mean is, it's it's not aimed at a very sophisticated, nuanced kind of crowd. You know, it's an action film. It's a fantasy film. It's full of superheroes being superheroes. And I think sometimes that is just a case of, uh, but especially being based on the kinds of comic books that it is. And again, this isn't to say that comic books can't be heavy and can't be have meaning, deeper um, depth to them. But it, it, it kind of is that format it's it is by its nature kind of flippant it's quite kind of quippy it's kind of breezy and um flighty and and all that kind of thing so i will also add i, I did find infinity war very entertaining i don't think it was uh yeah. heavy i don't think it, it necessarily even would have benefited all that much from having more drama um because it was just a big blockbuster popcorn action film yeah. that tied up a nice bit of story set up the next one kind of quite well uh and was just a, a a fun couple of hours in the cinema for me i don't know if i watch these type of films for emotional impact it's nice <laughs> if there is some but yeah. it's not the main reason why i'm going to watch a superhero movie of this type sure part two turns to good old television and what's on the box off the box and then on the box again, Cancel Friday, as it has apparently been dubbed. Uh, so I found out in an email from Tony earlier. Uh, it's all Fox's cancellation of the apparently much-loved sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was then later picked up by NBC. Uh, I guess the biggest surprise is that it wasn't Netflix, right? I mean, Netflix known really uh, in the early days, I guess, with their revival of certain shows, uh, looking at shows like Arrested Development, which will be arriving shortly for its fifth season after it was originally cancelled in the third season. But I think the, the more interesting conversation that we can have is about the idea of resurrecting TV shows. I mean, is this, is this a good thing that cancelled shows can be resurrected? You know, should we be lamenting that Netflix and the like and social pressures through in, you know, social media channels weren't around to save shows like Firefly? Or should they just be left to their fate? Um... Steve, is it a good thing that this is uh, happening in the modern, it's, modern it, TV world? It seems odd that shows can change network. Like, you know... The could Great you British Bake Off, for example. Well, yeah, could you, could you imagine, <laughs> like, when there was just four channels? Some I'm trying to think of a 
like Only Fools and Horses suddenly being on ITV. It's just, mm. it, it seems to me that the, the, the networks have a strategy like I have on Football Manager of just set, searching for the best free transfers and signing them up. Just seeing what's available and picking them at, sh- at will. Mm. Um, but uh, it's a good thing if the if the if they're not just you know something like Brooklyn Nine Nine, which we mentioned was cancelled, mm-hmm. and a lot of people still think it has some legs in it and still had a story to tell, even though it is a, is a sitcom, it still had a a valid story to tell. And if that's the case, then what's the what's the harm in another network picking it up um, and and mm-hmm. taking it forward? It can only be a good thing if they're just if a network's just doing it because they think they can milk some money out of it and they end up churning out seasons of of rubbish that ends up being barely or tenuously linked to the original then what's the point of it really but if it's taking mm. taking everything on board the original cast the writers um etc and just putting it on a different channel then then great go for it i would point out that like the the reason that i think the reason it ended up at uh, nbc in particular as opposed to netflix is because nbc i think have a relationship with mike sure who was mm-hmm. the creator and showrunner, because he did, obviously, he did Parks and Recreation with NBC. Yep. He did The Good Place, which is on NBC at the moment, which is fantastic. And he's developing two pilots. So I think they saw it, and they knew it was a sure thing, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, no, I, I kind of, I can see the anxiety there. Like, I can understand the appeal of it, and, like, having a show that you like, and watching it, like, survive cancellation is great. Like, when somebody decides to bring back Hannibal for a fourth season, I will be all over that. Uh, but there's also part of me sort of sees this as like a broader trend in pop culture where we we seem reluctant to let old ideas go and yes. to try new mm-hmm. things in general. Yeah, I, that was totally my reaction. I just thought this is people reacting and don't want to see a show that, that ends uh, the way it does. I want more of it. I mean, we've had how, how many episodes? Uh, there must be over 100 episodes. And yet, you know, people still want more. Uh, maybe it might have been the right time to let the people involved move on, do something different, maybe see the people you like in something new and original. And... There's there's some weird stuff being brought back as well, even if it's a, even if it's just a rehash or you know a, a, a <laughs> reinvention ties or something, isn't it? No, the weirdest What's... one, like the weirdest one I've seen on Netflix is Monkey. What? <laughs> yeah. Monkey, yeah. Yeah, I don't get why. How, why has that? Does why is that needed a remake? How do you reboot Monkey? Well, that's because it's based on Journey to the West and not the original sixties <laughs> kung fu TV show for kids. I mean, well, it's, I've, I've not it's an epic, it, a Chinese epic. I've not looked of years into old. it in that much detail, admittedly. <laughs> but I mean, why this dubbed old show that used to be on like <laughs> Channel Four at? A weird time has come back. I don't know, but you know, I've got the the box set of that, all of them on DVD. Monkey. Did you know? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what to say. Well, I mean, I suppose there's nothing to say. But in in general, though, I I it does worry me. I, I've seen a comment earlier today when I was looking into this a little bit um, about Andy Samberg, who's the star of. I mean, I think it's fair to say he's the star of uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Talking about he wants kind of guest stars, more celebrity cameos. Uh, to appear <laughs> to me that's not a good sign no. that isn't a mark of uh, a, a show heading in the right direction oh don't worry that's okay because all the celebrities will be playing like family members distant family members of the main cast so it'll be like <laughs> every final season of every television show ever was it star mm. trek the next generation which had paul sorvino as Worf's long lost adopted brother <laughs> was one of my personal favorites yeah now i'm just waiting for um 
the, the episode where Chris Martin from Coldplay comes along and plays a piano in the middle of a... <laughs> that's a, a extras reference that I think is yeah. flying over people's so, heads. I mean, it's so, I mean Brooklyn Nine-Nine isn't, isn't... It's just going to be carrying on from where it left off. There's yeah. so many different types of come TV, you know, where they bring back shows. You've got The X-Files, which is continuing the same story with the same characters, essentially, but X amount of years down the line. Or you've got something where the BBC bought back Porridge, didn't they, after doing so many <laughs> different sitcom episodes from all these different old sitcoms, bringing them back. And it's so far removed because while it's in the same kind of setting, none of the characters are the same. It's just the same. It could be a completely different sitcom just based in the same place, really. Um, and it's got a tenuous link to the, the old, mm. the, the original series. And there's just so many ways of doing it. And yeah, I suppose it's put a lot of lot out of how much is wanted and how well it's executed. Mm. Yeah, mm. And, and and also, like, what, what's getting squeezed out? I mean, like, Tony mentioned, like, Cancel Friday, as it was known, when they, you know, when they announced the, when Fox announced this sort of spate of cancellations. Yeah. But you also had, like, ABC having Cancel Sunday, where they, you know, announced nine <laughs> different shows being cancelled yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of those are, like, one-season shows. A lot of those are shows that haven't necessarily found their feet. Now, I'm not saying, for example, that Zach Braff's infamous Let's Start a Podcast sitcom Alex Inc. was going to be a masterpiece in waiting. But like there there is a sense of like no longer waiting to find an audience because you you know you've got so much new yeah. content. This is the era of peak TV. And not only is it the era of peak TV where everybody's like fighting for those eyeballs. You point out that there were only four networks back in the day. Now you have access to like 700 channels and most of them are expected to produce some sort of scripted like TV content. So, like, you no longer have that idea of, like, room for original shows like, say, The X-Files back in the 90s to grow, mm -hmm. where its mm -hmm. audience would have been minuscule for most of the first season, would have been slightly better in the second season, and would have finally hit the ground running in the third, and then gone stratos you know, stratospheric in the fourth. Now it's, like, it's hit the, hit the ground running or get kneecapped and then basically buried in a pit in the middle of the desert while we bring back Lethal Weapon, now starring Sean William Scott. And it, it, it's <laughs> that sort of, like, I can, I can, that... Like, I, I understand that people like things that are familiar to them. And I understand that if you are looking for an edge in the modern television marketplace, you want basically a foothold, which is that presumed empathy. Which, you know, it's funny when we're talking about like films that you're talking about, like why people should feel sad when Loki dies at the start of like Infinity War. And the reason is because you have this assumed empathy that you've carried over from yeah, earlier sure. films, as opposed to having to earn it. And it feels like the modern television landscape has something similar, where because there's so much churn, because there's so much television, because we all have so little time, what you need to do is you need that presumed empathy in there already. You need basically somebody who can point to the show and say, I know what this show is. You know, you like the thing that this show is based on or you like the earlier example of this show or you like this show when it existed a couple of years ago but didn't get enough ratings to sustain itself on ABC but now it's on Netflix. And so it, it kind of, it, it does make me a bit nervous about like a broader like pop cultural trends. As much as mm -hmm. I, I like that people like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I feel happy that people who like Brooklyn Nine-Nine are getting more of it. And as I pointed out, I'm a complete hypocrite. The moment that Hannibal is confirmed for like Amazon Prime or Netflix, <laughs> I will be like, this is the best day in television history. But I, so, I would be lying also if I said that there isn't a part of me that is anxious or nervous mm -hmm. about what this says about modern like pop culture just overall. It didn't work for heroes, did it? Heroes got us mid revival. <laughs> it's not always a good thing, is what I'm getting. What I'm saying. Prison break. Yeah. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to this edition of The Cassette Type. Today, I'm only going to be brief as I talk about a musician who sadly left us last week, Scott Hutchinson of Frightened Rabbit. I was never a heavy listener of Frightened Rabbit, but they headlined the first music festival that I ever went to back in 2011. I didn't see the set as they played on the last day, right after my favourite band played, so I went to recover afterwards. I could hear them from my tent, and I thought they were pretty okay. It took six years before I finally saw them live, and I saw them properly at the Handmade Festival in Leicester in 2017, and I really liked them. I'd listened to a few of their songs over the years. I really loved the woodpile. The first time I heard the chorus of Keep Yourself Warm, it honestly stayed with me and it still does. It has like a haunting effect. Hutchinson had a really unique way of writing songs that dealt with depression, addiction and suicide and amply talked about his own mental health a lot. The amount of tweets I saw about him filled my timeline. Scott Hutchinson was able to help a lot of people with his own words and I would like to pass on my thoughts to his family and his friends and anyone else affected by his loss. If you've never listened to a Frightened Rabbit album, please give the Midnight Organ Fright and listen. Scott is going to be missed. Rest in peace, Scott. I'm going to fast forward to the releases that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Charles Watson and Slow Club releases his debut album, Now That I'm a River, on the 18th of May. The week after, sees albums from Hatchie and Churches. Hatchie, I saw support Anna Birch in Birmingham. There's a lovely catchy synth-pop sound that was very good live, but I can't wait to see how that translates on the record. Churches reveal their third album, Love Is Dead, on the same day. I got really obsessed with the previous album, Every Open Eye, and whilst the singles haven't grabbed me as much as Without a Trace did, the songs have been great and signal a brilliant third album. And before I go, I'd like to point out that if you're just feeling a bit down or you want to speak to someone about anything whatsoever, then the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year on 116123. Alternatively, you can visit their website at samaritans.org. And that's all for me on this edition of The Cassette Tape. After not featuring books at all in our first eight episodes, uh, we're back to novels for the second STT Rewind in a row in free play, and specifically to talk about tie-ins to other media, uh, books 
based on games, movies, TV, whatever medium uh, you guys want to want to talk about. Really, um, specifically, this is to tie into Tony's review of Alien Cold Forge by Alex White, which he is still pumped about. Tony still talks about that. And uh, you can go and read his review on, online, read the interview with Alex White as well. It's very interesting insight into the creation of this kind of media that we're talking about. Uh, but I'm going to go straight off the bat and throw the question out to both of you. Tie-in media. <laughs> I mean, that's quite an open question, but uh, wow, it's so it's so big. It could be relevant to anything. Um Darren, I think we we mentioned briefly, and I, I kind of stopped the conversation dead so we could hold it for this section of the podcast. You you mentioned you're not particularly a fan of tired media. Is that fair? No, no, that that's not not entirely fair. I feel like that's maybe a bit of a, a okay. minor mis mm -hmm. misrepresentation. I'm not a huge fan of like certain managed forms of tie-in media. Like for for my mind, like what tie-in media exists to do, what tie-in media does at its absolute best. And again, this is just me speaking for my own preferences and my own tastes. Is mm -hmm. it does stuff that the source material could never actually physically do whether due to like budget limitations, whether due to structural limitations of being like a, a film that has to appeal to a mass audience or being a television show that works with a budget that's set by a network or even just like the standard format of having to do like 10 minute acts and then TV, you know, sort of commercial breaks. Sure. Like mm -hmm. tie, good tie-in fiction for me takes something and does something completely unpredictable and random with it and does something interesting and exciting. So like for, for me, my ideal stage of tie-in media, my like utopian ideal of what tie-in media should look like is probably something akin to the Star Trek tie-in media that happened during the 70s and, and a little bit into the early 80s, where you had a bunch of writers who were working from, you know, the canon in inverted commas of the original series, but it was a very loose canon at that stage. It was very broad. It hadn't really been hammered down. Nobody really sort of defined a lot of the stuff that, you know, the later spin-offs would sort of take for granted. Like mm -hmm. stuff like Ahura, Ahura didn't have a first name. Sulu didn't have a first name at this point that they were writing these. So you would have writers who would come in and they would do things that would be completely off the wall and ridiculous. <laughs> so you could do stuff like, you could have David Gerard, or Gerald, who wrote like The Trouble with Tribbles for the show, could write a tie-in novel that was set on a generational spaceship where time was compressed in the style of like Interstellar, for example, um, or obviously like a you know that sort of stuff, and you could do something that wouldn't be possible to do on television. You could have, for example, uh, Vonda M. McIntyre doing like these these origin stories, these character focused episodes or character focused stories for people who had never you know you couldn't have an episode about a horror in nineteen sixty six through nineteen sixty nine, but you could write a tie in novel about her. You could have John Ford, who is one of the greatest tie in writers of all time. He wrote two Star Trek tie in novels. One of them was the uh, the final reflection which is a complete fictional history of the Klingons which was completely done away with by all the stuff that Ronald D. Moore did later on but it basically invented Klingon culture from scratch which was something that a television show or a film series in the 90, in the 60s and 70s never could have done but he built that up from scratch and it's remarkable to read. It reads like Lord of the Rings sort of thing but with Klingons and then you also <laughs> have him write How Much for Just the Planet which is this gonzo musical parody in book form which features Scotty locked in a life-and-death game of golf on an alien planet for mining rights against the Klingons, which is something that you would never, under any circumstances, see presented in Star Trek that's sort of like 
like relatively serious, relatively po-faced and sort of confined by the sense that it has to be this sort of story. It has to be a story that reflects, you know, that has to you know serve as broad mm -hmm. an audience as possible. So you have that sort of style of story in tie-ins that works really, really well. You can do stuff like, you can tell the backstory of like the probe from Star Trek Four in the music of the spheres, which was famously like scrapped. And like, that's my ideal form of tie-in. What I find myself anxious about with certain forms of tie-in media, and particularly in the modern like age, is where tie-ins are all really, really, really carefully and meticulously managed. Where there's, and in, in Star Trek, you can put that down to the arrival of Richard Arnold, who was like Gene Roddenberry's right-hand man, where he would do things like he would basically scrap books because they didn't fit his depiction of what Star Trek was. He would say that, you know, they couldn't actually introduce new elements to the Star Trek universe. They couldn't do new or interesting things. They had to simply offer a carbon copy of what was available on screen. And I'm like, that's not what a tie-in novel should do. Um, and you have basically this sort of like codification of like novels or tie-in fiction that are only worthwhile because they are in continuity or they're, they're canon with like mm -hmm. the material that exists on screen. And that makes me a little bit uneasy because I've always, I like cheesy i like the cheesy quality of times i like the the ambition of times i like the fact that they're not necessarily confined that they're crazy it's you're taking a character that you recognize and you're doing anything goes with them uh, and that's sort of what jumps out at me about sort of about times and why i'd be sort of more cautious about things like i know that the star wars expanded universe for example had a very rigid like structure of continuity and but i think i'll, I'll probably ask steve to speak to that because steve knows much more about star wars than i ever will well i mean i didn't really read any of the expanded universe in in most recent years it's more when i was younger but it did seem to be that george lucas would give a few sort of rules so i think the two main main ones as two ma main ones were probably um he didn't want any Wookiee Jedi, apparently. <laughs> it's just, of so, all the rules to impose, it's like, no yeah. Wookiees can be Jedis. Yeah. Or they, they made one, and he Racist. was like, no more. He, yeah. They made one, and he was like, no more. That's it. <laughs> just one. And then also, it was, uh, he didn't want, like, Yoda's species revealed ever, because that was, oh. like, a that was like a mystery. So mm. that was never revealed, and even of all the hundreds and thousands of books and comics and everything they did, that was never revealed. Um, and then there was like a team who worked for whichever branch it was, Lucasfilm or somebody who basically kept it all, um, all the continuity together. So made sure everything fitted in with each other and, and, and made sure it was all, you know, accurate. And then George Lucas would make another film and overwrite loads of things and they'd have to all wreck on it. And it was a right nightmare for him. Um, what a some job it, that is though. Crikey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of it was, some of it was good. Some of the books were good. Some, some weren't, some of the ideas were interesting. Some were terrible. Like any, there was like any kind of um, sure. tie-ins. It was just the sheer volume of it because it went on for ages. And then Disney came along, bought Star Wars and went, no, this mm. is all not canon anymore. And they've started their own. So they've started their own comics and books and games, etc. But they have taken elements from the expanded universe and introduced it into what they're doing because they were either quite interesting or quite popular. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I was going to head with this because um, specifically that direction in terms of comics, because like Mark Miller is a name that always stands out to me in this kind of conversation. I think he definitely got to a point in his career where he just thought well if i write a comic book 
it could be turned into a film. And you kind of got that feel through a lot of things. Like, I don't know if you guys ever read Kick-Ass before it was a film. Yeah. That definitely read like a treatment for a film, um, yeah. to me, anyway. And I think it's it's not necessarily a new thing. I mean, I, I've recently watched, and there's a review of this coming up on the on setthetape.com, of uh, Break Heart Pass, which is by Alistair McLean. Do, do either of you guys know the name Alistair McLean? It's not right if you haven't. Familiar, but, uh, yeah, so he was a he was a Scottish uh, novelist to begin with, and uh, his films quickly became big blockbuster hits of their time. Uh, Guns of Navarone, uh, where uh, where eagles dare that kind of thing. That was all him. Uh, but it, <laughs> so Breakheart Pass effectively became a film because they asked him to write a book first. So he wrote the book as if it was going to be a film. The book was popular enough that they turned it into the film that it was supposed to be in the first place. And so it kind of like it, it's come almost full circle there where it's not necessarily the tie in media to the film. It's it's the actual thing that needs to exist for them to say it's OK to make the film. I remember I was doing um, I, I did, I've written a bit about the Star Trek franchise. And so as part of that, I would have read a lot of the 70s sort of tie in fiction. And a lot of it's not great. But a mm. lot of it is really, really, really weird. Like there's there's a <laughs> there's an actual tie-in novel that was published by Pocket Books, right? An actual like Simon and Schuster subsidy wow. uh, subsidiary, right? Which was, um, but it was by Margaret Wander Buonanno, and it was basically like a women in prison novel, but in the Star Trek universe. And it was something to behold. It's like I don't necessarily I I don't want every Star Trek novel to be that, but the fact that this exists and somebody put an official brand on it is kind of interesting to me you mm. know in the way that like it isn't now because it would all be so carefully managed because there's no way you're going to make a women in prison sort of star trek movie for example or there's yeah. no way that you're going to make a like a, a musical where where scotty plays golf for the mining rights to an alien planet with a bunch of Klingons. <laughs> Um, and it, it just you, you you do lose a bit of that magic there. You do lose a bit of the weirdness, and it all feels very cynical and very calculated. You know. Yeah, I should wrap this up by saying you know that's not the impression Tony gave in oh, his review sorry. of Alien Cold Forge. If, if we're gonna name good recent tie-in media, I jump to say Transformers versus GI Joe, which is an IDW <laughs> comic book, which seems like it should be the most ridiculously cynical tie-in ever, but is amazing. Um, yeah. And if you are interested in sort of checking that out, I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Always good to end on a recommendation than a negative. That's good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of STT Rewind. I've been your host, Owen Hughes, and I was joined this week by Steve Norman and Darren Mooney. Thanks go to Matt Latham for his music roundup in cassette tape. If you like the show, please search for STT Rewind on iTunes or any other podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review. And remember to visit setthetape.com for your regular dose of TV, film and all that other stuff. You can find us on social media at setthetape, but we'll be back in a fortnight's time. Until then, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 